Welcome to the next best podcast with your hosts, Chris Cashman. 24 years old, a former sheet metal worker, Mr. America, and twice Mr. Universe. And Chris Daniels. Time Magazine even named him Person of the Century. Now, from the CNC Podcast Factory, here's the next best podcast. Here we are, Chris, on a special commemorative edition <laughs> of the Next Best Podcast. That's why we've got these collector's mugs here and the tote bags to commemorate what is an unfortunate anniversary today. Ten long years since the Sonics left Seattle. July 2nd, 2008. I remember it well. It's hard to believe, though, that it's been a decade now without the green and gold. It has been long enough that as we now know, this whole saga, Sonic's Gate, has been commemorated with its own documentary. We're going to play the trailer here because this will remind you of the storyline and by default, it will remind you about so many of your favorite Sonic's memories. Learn how the Sonics were stolen from Seattle. A city held hostage. I think the NBA has to make an example of a couple of teams every now and then. It is a national issue fought locally. Greed. To me, if it is a public trust, he violated that public trust. He tried to run a basketball team like his coffee business. Lies. We have great respect for history. Betrayal. There aren't many teams that have been in one place for four decades. At the end, it was about money. Heartbreak. It's like fighting against a hurricane. You have hope the hurricane's not going to blow your house down. But good luck with that. The true story behind the hottest young team in the NBA. Their whole game plan was to get out of town and create as much ill will in the process as they could. There are a lot of villains in this story. <laughs> no more Sonics makes no sense at all. Sonics Gate, Requiem for a Team. Chris, you were a part of <laughs> Sonic Skate, the documentary. I love the passion behind that. It was pretty much too painful for me to watch for a long, long time, but a lot of people uh, that I look up to and eventually became friends with, like you, like the Graz, uh, Kevin Calabro featured in that as well. What do you remember from that whole experience, and how surreal was it for you to even be participating in a documentary about our beloved basketball team that was ripped out of our hands? It, it has been... Uh... A saga with so many twists and turns. I mean, credit uh, Jason Reed and Adam Brown and, and, and the crew that, that put that together. It's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own right. uh, over time, and they've kept the fire burning, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Uh, it, it That's one of three documentaries that right. I've been in related uh, to this whole subject, and I, I think it just speaks to the, 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 the levels, uh, when you peel the onion, just how how deep that onion goes, uh, and how many, I mean, use whatever metaphor you want. There's been so many different arms to this, and it's, it's touched so many different people. I, I, I've always been interested in, in you know, I, I, always, I think I've told you before, being out in a, a, a field in East King County years ago uh, after the Sonics left, and a farmer, I'm doing a, a, a farm story, uh, and this farmer's walking me out and says at the end of it, you know, I really only follow agricultural websites and 
uh, tweets and whatnot, but you're my one outlet because I want to know what's happening on with, with the Sonics and the right. Arena. I mean, it's it's those kind of things that keep me going and keep me interested in, in pursuing this. But it it really, uh, as a guy who grew up here, like you, yeah. uh, you know how woven into the fabric of society that team has been. I think it, it's a fair statement to make that the the demographics on NBA basketball are so different than any other sport in this town. Uh, it, it touches, it reaches a broad brush of sports right. fans, and I think it's uh, on a on a game night, Sonics games. It was the most culturally diverse place in Seattle, and it's a great thing when you get people together united behind the passion of sport. Uh, I, I can remember watching them at the Kingdom. And, and it's funny how time has gone on. I, I, I vividly remember going to the Kingdom with my father and watching the Sonics and the Atlanta Hawks go into quadruple overtime. And I brought up that game with the likes of Wally Walker and Fred Brown and Gus Williams, and they will tell you instantly, yeah, we lost that game. They remember it. I mean, right. that, that game that I remember watching right. uh, with with my father, and I can remember go, them going to the Tacoma Dome and... I mean, you never thought that was going to be a team that left yeah. until 2006, and that's when I think this saga really started, when Howard Schultz sold the team to a group of Oklahoma City investors, uh. and I remember Googling right away, uh. Googling right away, who is Clay Bennett, who is yeah. Aubrey McClendon, and there was a quote from Clay Bennett, Bennett in the Oklahoman saying, the key to NBA ownership is local ownership. And I remember telling people that day, it's over. They're going to move to Oklahoma City eventually, and that was 2008. I got to say, listening even just to the trailer for Sonic's Gate, so many memories came flooding back. Like I said, not not just uh, some of the names involved in that. Uh, you know, now friendships of mine that I value, and I realize the common thread was the Supersonics. Uh, you are one of them. Uh, I mentioned the Graz, who I eventually worked with on sports radio, which for me was very foreign. I had worked in local television, local radio, fan of sports, never pretended to be any sort of an expert, uh, and then suddenly had a job opportunity to help launch ESPN Radio in Seattle. And it really was just kind of presented to me as, hey, we've got the experts, we've got the sports people, we want the funny guy. Come, come in here and help us, and we know you know how to edit and do all that stuff. I worked behind the scenes as well in production. So I was kind of handed this opportunity, and I, I remember sitting at home, not taking it very seriously, going, I, I don't know enough to go work in sports radio. And then they mentioned the other caveat, which was, oh, by the way, you would, essentially you'd be the sidekick to Kevin Calabro. And that was immediately attractive to me. Longtime voice of the Sonics. Now he's working in Portland, of course. But KC to me was the voice I heard when the Sonics were everything to me. Beans outside to Kemp, high on the left side, spots the oh, Get on the magic carpet and ride it to the heavens, baby! Reach up to a star and bring it down, Rain Man. You know, his play-by-play. Play. So to get a chance to go work with him day in and day out, I could not pass it up. And I always told people, for me, it was like studying abroad. It really was a bit of a foreign language to suddenly be in sports radio and have to really sort of understand how all of this works. And it was worth it to me because I was going to get to sit next to Casey and hear him and talk to him. And the second we were off the air, I would bother him about the Sonics and go, hey, what was it really like? What do you remember? What was Kemp like? And he would tell me some of these stories, which I don't think I'm speaking out of school about, you know, what it was really like 
on the team plane, you know, that, that in those days in the Kemp era, it was Kemp's team. You know, he said yeah. he, he would put on his boom box and whatever Kemp was listening to, we were all listening to on the plane. You know, he'd talk about players just lying down in the floor of airplanes and they'd have to step over them as they slept. And so I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And hearing that trailer really crystallized to me what the Sonics were to me, uh, you know, mostly because of my age. The Sonics were not really my team until Kemp came along. Prior to that, I was a Trailblazers fan because much of my oh family, my. much of my family's <laughs> from Oregon. They're from yeah. Central Oregon, Bend, Oregon, before anybody knew where that was, and it was the hip happening place to move to now. I used to go there to visit my family, and so by default, they were all Blazer fans. So, you know, my uncles would give me a Blazer hat when I was a 10-year-old kid. Okay, they're my team. Clyde Drexler was kind of the first player that I got to see in person that I connected to and went, that guy's cool. I like him. I like them. So the Blazers were kind of my team until the late 80s when Kemp was drafted. And suddenly there was this new guy, the youngest guy in the league, and hmm, he's interesting. And I think about the first time I saw him do one of his trademark tomahawk jam dunks on somebody. Whoa, who's this guy? (laughs) We were all seduced by Michael Jordan at that time. But Kemp just spoke to me. And, you know, much like people will sit through baseball seasons and watch 162 games, I didn't care if it was a Tuesday night and they were playing some team that was irrelevant. When the Sonics were on and I was anywhere near a TV and the game was on, I was going to watch it because I knew at any minute Kemp and Kemp and Peyton certainly could go off. Something spectacular could happen at any moment. So to me, it goes back to about 89 when he was drafted. Of course, it was a couple of years in before mm-hmm. I really started becoming himself. So it was, for me, the early 90s, which was junior high, high school for me. You know, that's when, in my mind, it was an option to have that as a job. If you asked me <laughs> in 6th, 7th, 8th grade, what are you going to do when you grow up? Oh, I'm going to play for the Sonics. I thought it was a choice because these guys meant so much to me. They were absolutely heroes to me. You know, it turns out Kemp was not even 10 years older than me. But when you're that age, you look yeah. up to the cooler, older kid, and I went, wow, these guys are special, you know? And then in 95, 96, right when I'm in high school, right when I'm getting ready to, to leave and go off to college, the Sonics and the Bulls, and my dad takes me, and I got to see Michael Jordan in person, and that was terribly exciting. But I loved that I liked my guys better. I liked their chances better. And you remember they took that to what? uh, To to six games. It wasn't even supposed to be a series, but it was. So I was just in. I was absolutely hooked and fascinated by the Sonics during the 90s, like so many people are. So to me, that's the snapshot I have in my brain. That's my era. And then to later in life, get to meet Kemp (laughs) and get to interview him. I think the first time was on sports radio. and I. Probably embarrassed myself. I mean, I was just, (laughs) hey, hi. I was so excited to meet him. And he was super gracious and nice. And I told him this in person when we got off the air. I said, I'm so happy that you're doing well. Because, you know, there had been so many storylines and so many ups and downs for him. But to see him in a moment where he seemed to be doing well, things were going well. He was a businessman. He was opening up restaurants here in Seattle. I told him, I said, man, you are a hero of mine, and I'm so happy that you're doing well right now. This makes me very happy. And then, you know, over the course of years, actually got to be a little friendly with him. And he was nice enough to appear with me in silly videos. I called on you to do a fun parody for a comedy show we were doing. He's appeared in three or four skits I did. And people always say, how did you get him to do that? And I said, I just asked. And he said yes. He was just nice enough to do it. So 
uh, yeah, my passion has not gone away for the Sonics. Uh, you know, the sting of them leaving has subsided a little bit, but I think so many of us still have this disbelief as we stand here on this anniversary on July 2nd and talk about that they have been gone for so long and that young children, I have an 11-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old daughter, they never saw the Sonics. That's just strange to me. And there's people who don't know what the Sonics are. But yeah, to your point, a lot of these guys uh, that have been involved with the franchise have stuck around here. Fred Brown stuck around here. Sean Kemp. Right. Kevin Calabro did not move with the franchise to Oklahoma City. Uh, There was... uh, uh, one guy that was doing security for the Sonics, he went down to Oklahoma City and then said a year later, boy, I felt like I was cheating on my wife and moved back right. uh, here to Seattle. Um, Harry Bailey, who who was the uh, fire chief and police chief here in Seattle, ended up becoming their chief of security right. in that last year at Key Arena. But, uh, yeah, he, he has uh, talked about that over the years, how, how he just could not stay in Oklahoma City long term. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to your point, Chris, the – there are with sports franchises a lot like music they kind of define a time in your brain right so everybody you know, as much as grunge did you know, I, I, with seattle i think of that genre that era of the sonics were symbolic with seattle well i have i have said to people that the seahawks currently are a lot like what exactly. the mariners were in 2001 2002 2003 in terms of the hottest ticket in town you look at the mid-90s, I think a lot of people in Seattle associate with the Sonics, Pearl Jam, yep. Grunge was on the rise, Seattle was in the spotlight, the 95 Mariners, uh, for a lot of people who follow baseball in this town, that was a key moment. And then you date back to 1979, it came up a lot during the Seahawks parade that people remembered going to that championship parade back in 1979 when the Sonics won it all. So it, it's kind of funny how you define these moments in time yeah. by what your local teams have done. And I think that's, you know, for for certain people of a certain era, yeah, the Sonics are so uh, interwoven with their childhood uh, and seeing these guys. I think it was uh, Sherman Alexie who once referred to them in Sonics Gate as Greek gods. Right. Uh, that uh, a lot of people have fond memories of the of the franchise. Well, it's like people look at you know these documentaries about you know the Pistons and the, the Bad Boys, and uh, you know I think that's the part that really spoke to me is not only the success that the Sonics were suddenly having, but there was this bravado. You know the Kemp and the Peyton factor. They were cool. We were yeah. we were tough. You know Sir Mix a Lots producing songs and not in our house. It's the nine tray, y'all and the supersonics is all at an Ebola grip. And people so were feeling it. I just felt so proud. And I think people prior to what 2013, when the Seahawks uh, suddenly were doing the Super Bowl thing, we got Russell Wilson. We're this hot, flashy team. I think people forget how long of a drought we have had yeah. in this town to be puffing our chest out about. A sports team. You know, I mean, sure, the Seahawks had, had gone to the Super Bowl with Matt Hasselbeck, but it just wasn't that same feeling of confidence and cool factor. And it seemed like more of a, oh, that team out in Seattle, yeah, cute, good for them. So the Sonics gave us that, certainly in the mid-90s. And then the Seahawks kind of reminded everybody, and like you said, they are now what the Sonics were during yeah. that time. So it's, it's so crazy to look back. Man, so many of my favorite childhood memories are tied to the Sonics. Well, and you know what what has been interesting about this, we're talking about 2008 when it, when it all went down. Uh, is that it's been so theatrical. I mean, yeah. that's why I think a lot of people have 
enjoyed Sonic Skate. Those guys did a great job putting that together. Amazing it was work, a, yeah. you know, it was a personal project for them, and it, it's actually uh, helped launch them on a successful career of, of making other films yeah. and documentaries. But you know, like I said, 2006 is when it when it really started with Clay Bennett. Uh, 2007, 2008 season. I think it was obvious to anybody that was watching that that the Bennett group uh, had started to wind down on like the concessions that were available in Key Arena. Out the door. They stopped advertising on local radio. They were trying to uh, to borrow a phrase that was used in federal court: "poison the well." Yeah, uh, of the fan base. And so, yes, attendance dropped. Uh, in, in that year, uh, that was Kevin Durant's rookie year, by the right. way. Uh, but was what was so bizarre about it was the the, the press conferences back and forth in New York, uh, how uh, the animosity really got turned up between quickly between the city and Clay Bennett uh, and, and the NBA as well. I mean, there's a there's a famous story that a lot of people have told about. Uh, David Stern flying out here um, back in in the mid two thousands to help Howard Schultz flew in on his private jet yeah. into Boeing Field took a plane down or took a uh, a car down to a private car down to Olympia to meet with Frank Chop and when he went into Frank Chop's office Chop immediately said to him according to people that were in the room I don't know why you wasted your time you already know the answer but you got a half hour and that turned off David Stern so much, he jumped back in his car from Olympia to Boeing Field, flew out of here back to New York, and it was just all bad after that. Timbers started falling. Yeah, and so in in, in 2007, 2008, there's the vote from the NBA owners. Clay Bennett's made it clear he wants to go to Oklahoma City, but they had that federal trial. And that's where it just, I mean, it begins to just become so theatrical. It's a saga. That they they had a federal trial over allowing Clay Bennett and the Sonics to get out of their lease at Key Arena. Right. And the city tried to fight it and, and did fight it. And Howard Schultz filed another lawsuit uh, saying that they, they didn't negotiate in good faith to find a new arena. I mean, yeah. all this crazy stuff that you, you never thought you'd see happen here we are sitting in a federal courthouse listening to the likes of Wally Walker and others testify in front of a federal judge. And depending on who you believe, uh, either the city was winning their case, but Bennett had a good attorney who poked a lot of holes in the city's case. Right. But it comes down to that day, July 2nd, when Marsha Peckman is scheduled to make her ruling on whether the Sonics have to stick to their lease at Key Arena and the city settles with Clay Bennett and allows them to leave, pays off the debt on Key Arena, uh, but allows them to leave. And there's you know, some thought that if they would have stuck around for those last two years, the bottom dropped out of the economy. Yeah. Uh, Aubrey McClendon had to start selling off his wine. There's a lot of what-ifs there, uh, but that was the, the start of... Um, uh, I don't want to say it was the start of the saga, but I mean, it, we ha- we have seen many twists and turns since. Yeah, you know, I you even referencing that and the Kevin Durant, you know, brings back another memory because, of course, you get this draft prize. You're excited. Here we go. Uh, he continues to be one of the few people that takes the sting out of all this for me because yeah. of how he handled that situation. Uh, I don't envy being in his situation to be drafted to be in Seattle. Suddenly, the team's taken away you're now playing for what is seen as the enemy suddenly, but he always kept his love for Seattle, you know, either on his head or on his chest. You know, he'd always wear the hat. He'd come out of the, you know, you'd see 
Oklahoma Thunder practice and he'd be wearing a Sonics hat coming out of yeah. the tunnel. And I knew that probably drove them crazy, but I thought that was a very gentleman wink and a genuine effort to say, Seattle, just remember that I had nothing to do with this. Yeah. So, and, um, and I think he's made it clear over time he, he wasn't too fond of the idea of leaving Seattle after yeah. one year. He liked Seattle. He kept his home here right. uh, for several years. Uh, Russell Westbrook, let's not forget, was drafted by the Sonics. I mean, there's pictures of him wearing a Sonics hat, and then, Two weeks later, he's he's moving into Oklahoma City. It's crazy. And, uh, I mean, what it's, could have been? Yeah, I mean, you could have had James Harden, Russell Westbrook, and Kevin Durant, three MVPs, playing together in Seattle. And keep in mind, these guys are all at the top of their game in what the last three, four, five yep. years. Yep. The same time, the Sonic, uh, the the Seahawks have come up and become this white hot team. We could have had both of those teams oh, side by side in Seattle, and it could have been <laughs> the most amazing. Okay, we don't even want to go yeah. there. But uh, we are looking back because uh, nobody has had to uh, cover this more than you. It is, I don't want to say a labor of love because you know, it's more of like a labor of heartbreak for yeah. you to have to deal with this as a fan. But we're looking back through the archives, talking about some of these memories, and one of them jumped out to you in 2011. 2011, uh, so the, it, there didn't appear to be any NBA team on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah. And I started getting hints that the National Hockey League was poking around in Seattle. There were investors poking around about a potential east side uh, arena for a National Hockey League franchise. And so I reached out to the NHL. The Vancouver Canucks were uh, hot at the time. They were uh, battling for the Stanley Cup. They were one of the top teams in the National Hockey League. And we went up to a playoff game, and that's where I first met the deputy commissioner of the National Hockey League, who let it slip that Seattle was on the radar. Certainly we've talked to people who are interested in having NHL hockey in Seattle. uh, Rather not get into specifics, I don't think it's fair either to that group or or the process. The league's second-in-command also admits the NHL is looking for new ownership for at least two franchises. I think all sports leagues want stability in ownership and in location, and we're no different in that regard. It's no secret the league has long-eyed Seattle, whose Metropolitans won the Stanley Cup in 1917 and has hundreds of hockey fans currently making a run for the border. Daly says at the end of the day, he still has concerns about existing arenas right now in Seattle. I, I think the key arena is a difficult arena for hockey. How many of those seats would not be obstructed view seats is the question. Bottom line, would the NHL need a new arena in order to put a hockey team in the Seattle area? I would think so, yeah. So that was Bill Daly, the deputy commissioner of the National Hockey League, saying that they had a group from Seattle interested. But, yes, you just heard him say <laughs> there needed to be a new arena. Huh. And, and that was when we were talking about a guy named Don Levin out of Chicago, there's been other names that have popped up over time. Ray Bartizek, yeah, Ray Bartizek, uh, Victor Coleman, uh, and, and now we have David Bonderman and, and Jerry Bruckheimer. But you know that was the first time we really heard the National Hockey League. So seven years ago, say they were interested in the market and interested in a new arena here. Of course, flash forward to now. You know the tracks are being laid. It looks all but official that yeah. we will have a team. So. I think like a lot of Sonics fans, when that was all coming down and started to happen, I kind of saw it as a smokescreen. Personally, on a personal level, I thought, don't distract us with hockey. What about my basketball? When's it coming back? Now I've sort of accepted 
the hockey side of it, and I, I don't I see it as a mutually exclusive thing. I think, okay, let's, let's be happy. I, I won't pretend to be a diehard hockey fan, but I have experienced it at the pro level. I went and saw a, a Tampa Bay Lightning uh, when I was visiting a friend in Florida, and I was like, wow, now I get it. Yeah. It was terribly exciting. It's a great live sport. In person, that arena experience is fantastic. It's, it's up close. You're on top of it. It does not, in my opinion, I know a lot of people share the opinion, it doesn't translate well to TV. Hockey yeah. just doesn't work as well on TV. If you see it in person, you'll get it. So I'm buying in. I'm, our, I'm a part of the people on a waiting list to get these season tickets with a friend of mine. I get it. I think it's exciting. But I know how a lot of people continue to hear even us talking about hockey and go, what about basketball? We hope, wait, and assume like everybody else that it's just a matter of time before that happens. We're recording right now. I can look right over your shoulder. We have a view of Soto, the area that mm-hmm. Chris Hansen and his group and Russell Wilson and company are proposing to put in an arena. Who knows, right? We, we still don't know right. where that might go. You know, Chris Hansen, more than most people, has continued to say, we'll be patient. This takes time. We get yeah. it. You know, we're not, we're not going to stop this fight until our, our feet are courtside. So I guess I want to believe him. I want to hope. Who knows? Maybe the key arena group. Maybe they will get this renovation. Maybe it can be a dual sport venue. You know, we we shall see. But in us reflecting and looking back at these memories, you also dug up an interesting piece of audio (laughs) from 2013 while many of us were distracted by the Seahawks and their run for the Super Bowl. Uh, You had a conversation with a guy who is... uh, Well, it's kind of like, you know, in the Harry Potter world, there's that Voldemort, you're not supposed to say his name. Around here, David Stern is that name that you don't want to mention... Uh, you had an interesting encounter with him. Yeah, so, I mean, let's, let's fill in the gaps between 2011 and 2013, right? So the NHL is, is interested. Don Levin's kicking around the tires. And quietly, uh, a guy that uh, was really not on anybody's radar, uh, Chris Hansen, a guy out of San Francisco, quietly starts buying up land down in Soto. I can remember when I first saw the land records thinking, this seems like he overpaid. Somebody yeah. overpaid for a big warehouse. Uh, and yeah, a long story short, uh, they put together the land. Uh, they've continued to put together the land, and it's there, there's really a full story there and how they quietly did that over mm-hmm. time. Uh, but yeah, by 2012, uh, he he comes forward. By 2013, they've made a bid for the Sacramento Kings, and that became its own mini saga in our longer right. saga here in Seattle. The back and forth with Sacramento. When I know a lot of fans were torn because we were suddenly going to be. As much as we wanted a team back, do we want to be the people who break another city's heart and take their team away? Right. And uh, I was making a lot of trips all over the country, including back to New York. And at one point, uh, yeah, got into a back and forth with David Stern. Uh, It wasn't the first time. It certainly wasn't the last time. But uh, there was some talk as we got through that process that, and it's since become very public and true and accurate. He's got a street named after him in Sacramento that he was trying to help that effort, that last-ditch effort to keep the Kings. And so here's part of that exchange back in 2013. Commissioner Stern, are you trying to influence this decision one way or the other or trying to push the owners of the NBA one way or the other in making this decision? Actually, despite what you've written and said, the answer is no. So at the end of the day, is... This your decision, or is it the NBA owner's decision? At the end of the day, the committee, which is going to meet next week, will have to take a vote and decide what to do. 
So I don't understand not only your question, but where it would come from. Well, the Maloofs have said at this point they've now written a letter to the NBA saying they want this deal complete. They've said it also publicly they, they want it complete. So what's what exactly is the holdup? Well, I, I guess it would be fair to say as an issue that the owners are deliberating quite uh, conservatively and deliberately because uh, each team owns its team in its market. And that is why when a team wants to move, it becomes the province of the board rather than ownership. That's why we have this constitutional provision, which has this rather labor-intensive process that is, uh, you know, sort of weighing down on all of us as we go down the checklist, we get everything together, we answer questions and the like. So it's not as simple as the underpinnings of your last question are. Well, I'm glad to know that you do read our website and watch our TV station, so I appreciate that. So it's kind of funny in retrospect when you look at that five years later and how he denied that he was trying to do anything, and he's since given interviews saying, yes, he was quietly trying to push them in a certain direction. And, yeah, yeah, they have David Stern way (laughs) down in Sacramento out in front of their new arena and – you know, we were talking about friendships that have been built. I, I, I have friends now in Sacramento through that whole saga right. uh, that I got to know then, and we stayed in touch. And, you know, there's actually a documentary that was done on Sacramento down on the valley, a 30 for 30 that never aired. But I went to the. That's right. You told I, me. About I, that. I went to the premiere back at the Tribeca Film Festival with all the players involved in that, uh, the Sacramento Leadership Ownership Group, Mayor Kevin Johnson, and it was supposed to air on ESPN. Uh, one October, and Kevin Johnson got in some trouble down in Sacramento, to say the least, uh, the mayor of Sacramento, yeah. and uh, ESPN pulled the plug. But it was a really good documentary about what happened and, and talked about Seattle. It talks about Seattle. I mean, it still exists out there. Uh, but uh, it, it was a positive thing about Seattle. I think if it would have seen more eyeballs, maybe would have given some more momentum to bring in an NBA team uh, to Seattle, but it has definitely been an interesting ride over these last 10 years. Well, Chris, as painful as it might be for us to be here on July 2nd, commemorating a symbolic anniversary of the Sonics' departure, and, you know, by all definition, they're gone. I like to think that they're on a hiatus. I think that, you know, any genuine Sonics fan really does believe they're coming back. There's just no way. It was too important, too, you know, too big of a franchise with a successful history to not return. It seems like we're just waiting for somebody somehow to to right a wrong, to fix this and to bring them back. I got to ask you, and I don't know that I want to hear the answer. Do you think we're going to be standing here in 10 years? And by here, I mean, we'll probably be on Mars and some colony by then. But in 10 <laughs> years, are with we... With Space Force. Are we still with the Space Force? Are we still going to be talking about when are we going to get our Sonics back? Well, 10 years from now would be like an L.A. Rams fan in Los Angeles who had to wait 20 years to get a football team back. Uh, I don't think Seattle is going to be uh, in that position. I, I think uh, you know hockey is going to happen 2020 or 2021, depending on what happens with the arena. I think that's the only thing the NHL is waiting on. And then... 
We look to when the collective bargaining agreement ends uh, in the NBA or when uh, certain leases end. I, I don't think a lot of people are interested in pursuing a relocated franchise. Uh, but we're probably looking at least three or four years away uh, from a, a team, an, an NBA team, calling Seattle home. And I think when it does happen, I think there's a lot of fuel to the fire that it's going to be Seattle and Mexico City, hmm. uh, that the NBA will – We'll want to expand internationally to the south. Uh, but, I mean, obviously a lot can change in the geopolitical spectrum uh, before now and then. But I think we're, we're looking at, at, at at least three to four years away. Chris, good I'm stuff sorry. as always, though. <laughs> Thank you for all that great info. Thanks for the memories, dude. Yeah. All right. Good and stuff. as always, go Sonics. Twitter and Instagram at Next Best Pod. This is the exclusive ending of the Next Best Podcast.